We've been talking about experiencing God. And if you have your Bible, you can turn to, to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 5. And today as we're talking about experiencing God, we're talking about adjusting our life. Have you ever had to adjust your life a little bit? Have you, have you ever had any adjustments in your life? Do we like adjustments? Uh, what do you mean by adjusting your life? Well, it's, it's a six-letter word that we think is a four-letter word. It's called change. How many of you love to change? Uh, no, you don't. You only love to change if you are the one that is, that is engineering the change, if you're the one making the decision. I looked up the word change in the dictionary. It means to make different, to replace with another. But then I looked up in, in uh, just, just in a couple of websites some things. One person said change is a break in normal routine. Another person said change is altering the order I maintain in my life. Now we're getting honest, aren't we? And then it got a little unhealthy. I, one of the websites says, all change is bad. And a person came back said, in, in this said, I can't adjust to change. I wish they'd just leave everything alone. Here's, a, here's another response when they said, all change is bad. If I just ignore change, it will go away. Is that true? You can ignore all that hair falling out you want to. It's still going to fall out. You can ignore it going gray. Well, no, no one here has ignored it. You can go to the hairdresser all you want, but it's still going to be gray when you, when, one of these days. And I love this response. Change. Why did this happen to me? And here's, here's my favorite. I don't need to change. Everybody else in my life just needs to change so I can stay the same. Have you ever had to adjust to anything in life? you ever had to adjust to new clothes? Yeah, some of us have to get bigger clothes, not because you're growing taller. You just need to get new clothes. You have to adjust to new clothes. Uh, we, we adopted a couple of dogs over the last couple of years. Is there any adjustment to having a dog in your life? Our dogs don't understand daylight savings time. When light is there, then they're awake. In the last two days, I've, I, or the last couple of days before today, I, I actually got up before one of the dogs today. But, but before that, I would wake up, and there was this warm breath in my ear. And I thought, oh, Kathy, that's so sweet. It was buddy. It wasn't sweet, believe me. It was dog breath. It was, there was nothing sweet about it. You know, and, and it was like, hey, it's 5 o'clock. Can we go for a walk? No, we don't go for a walk at 5 o'clock. You have to adjust to these things. You adjust to a new car. You adjust to all kinds of things. But how do you adjust to being a disciple? And in one of the books I was reading this week, one of the, the, the commentators said, being Christ's disciple is often presented like a car ad. No money down, easy terms, low payments. It's a minimum, minimum commitment, maximum benefit. That's not the way Jesus ever presented being his disciple. In Luke chapter 14, uh, you're going to see a verse here in just a minute. In fact, there it is. But before you get to that, he says, listen, they came to him. He said something, they said something about his mother and his brothers. He says, no, this is my family. Unless It's as if you hate your mother and your brothers unless you come to that point. In contrast, if you don't love me so much that it almost is like you hate your family, it's not good enough. And, and then he says, Hey, in case you don't get it, everybody take your cross and follow me. What was he talking about? Oh, this is the cross I have to, to bear, that, you know, that I'm losing my hair or I'm getting old or whatever. No, that's not the cross you have to bear. He says, unless you're willing to die for me, how much are you willing to put on the line for me? In Luke 14, 33, this is the, 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 the culmination of all he said in Luke 14. Any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. You say, wait a second, Pastor. 
I don't get it. I thought we were saved by grace. It's a free gift. Absolutely. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's not anything you can do. You can't work for it. It's a gift. It's a free gift so that you cannot boast. You are saved by grace. It doesn't cost you a thing to be a Christian. Did you get that? does not cost you a thing to be a Christian. You can come to Christ and it does not cost you anything. The only thing is if you want to follow Christ as a disciple, it costs you everything. Do you get that? You're not earning your salvation. Salvation's free. You can come into heaven, you can be with him, but if you want to live for him, if you want to grow in him, then he says you need to be willing to put it all on the altar. You need to be willing to, to, to put it all on the line for me. To experience what it means to be a disciple requires us to adjust our life to God. And some of you are looking at me like, is he, is he preaching something new from the pulpit here? I'm not sure I like this. Well, you're going to like it less, but let's look at it anyway. Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. What does the Lord expect me to adjust? What does he expect me to adjust? It's a story early in the life of Peter and some of the other disciples. Luke 5, verses 1 through 5. One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, that's also the Sea of Galilee, there are several names for this body of water. It was the northern, uh, northern part, the, the fresh water, the good water, uh, the agricultural water. He was standing by this, the lake of Gennesaret with the people crowding around him and listening to the word of God. Luke focuses in on the message here. He focuses on, in that Jesus is teaching. He, he's trying to get them to focus on that. We always look at the miracle. Verse 2, he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. They're pushing Jesus to the point that he's at the edge of the water and his feet are getting wet. And he says, this isn't any good. Let's get in the boat. Let's go out just a little way. He uses the natural acoustics of the water, especially in the morning. If you're there on the Sea of Galilee, it's such a beautiful, calm sea many times. And he sat there and the water reflected his, his words. They could hear him clearly. And he taught them. Look at verse 4. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. What does he expect us to adjust? Number one, I need to adjust how I live. I need to adjust how I live. Jesus catches these guys. They've had a hard night. They've, they've fished all night. They said, we've had no luck with this. If you look at the other uh, Gospels, it points out that some of them are mending their nets. So not only have they been fishing all night, they've torn the nets. They have no fish to show for it. It's cost them money. It's cost them lots of money, and they have nothing to show for it. In other words, it's a typical fishing expedition for most of you when you go fishing. You lose lures. You lose equipment. You break something. It costs you a lot of money. If you figured out how much per pound you paid for those fish, no, we don't want to go there, do we? But you go fishing because you love to fish. And Peter, these guys, they made a living at it. These were pros. And Jesus is, is focusing on the message, and they're focusing on, man, it's been a lousy night. I'm tired. I wish this preacher would stop preaching the same thing some of you are focusing on right now. And, and he stops for a minute, and he says, listen, why don't you go out and why don't you throw the net out? And what does Peter say? Lord, you're a good teacher. You're a good rabbi. 
you know, Master, I, I appreciate all that you're saying to me, but you don't understand. You don't fish in the morning. You don't fish in the mid-morning, especially if you've been teaching for a while. You fish at night when it's cool. This isn't the, wrong, the right time. This isn't the right place. And the Lord said, go to the deep. Most of the times they were going around the edge of the lake, the edge of the Sea of Galilee, because that's where most of the, the schools of fish were caught. And so he's thinking he's in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong, with the wrong strategy. It's not going to work. He didn't adjust to what the Lord told him to adjust to. And many times when the Lord gives us instructions in our life, we think it's the wrong place with the wrong strategy at the wrong time and we're going the, the wrong direction. It's not, it's not what he wants us to do. And the Lord says, stop. Would you just listen to me? Joel, who prayed for the, the, off, uh, the offering today, last week we were talking and Zach was going fishing with Joel. He was all ready to go. He had his box of water. I didn't know what a box of water was. It was the water to contain the fish that they were going to catch. This, this guy is a positive thinker. He already knew. he was. Gonna, Did you come back with any fish? No. He, Joel started, uh, Zach started with a box of water. He ended with a box of water. That's what he got out of that fishing expedition. And he went and he fished, and I told him the story, true story of my son Jonathan, one of the few times I took him fishing. I'm not a big fisherman. John wanted to fish so badly. We were at Boys Ranch. We were there fishing in one of the little ponds. It was stocked. There should have been plenty of fish. He did not catch anything, and we got ready to go. And I said, John, you need to go. And he says, not yet. I don't have my fish. And he, you know, he's whining. He's a little boy, and he's whining the, the reel, not doing a particularly good job. And I said, we need to go. He says, I'm not ready, Dad. I don't have a fish. I don't have a fish. I said, John, if you do this, we won't get to go fishing again. He says, okay, and he grabbed that, that, that reel and the rod and he went, zoop, like that, and he just pulled it as fast as he could across the water, and it hooked a perch in the top fin and popped it out on the deck, and John said, I got my fish. <laughs> do we adjust to what God says? We focus on our lives, our circumstances, our way of doing things. Our comfort zone. Henry Blackaby says when God gives us an assignment, we have to realign our lives in some way. And God urges us to take a step of faith outside our comfort zone. To take those, those little steps. To take those, those first steps that God gives us. And when God came to Noah, could, God, could Noah continue in Genesis 6? When God said to Noah, I want you to build the ark, could Noah continue with life as he knew it? Or did he have to adjust some things to build this ark? For 100 and plus years, he built this ark. You don't think at some point along the way people were saying, Noah, what are you doing? That's not a message from God. You ate some really bad pizza sometime. That's what, that's not, this is not from God. God would never ask you to do this. And Noah just continued. He had to adjust his life to God. Rahab was the, the harlot. And, and Israel was coming and she hid the spies. And, and they said, if you will do this, if you'll put us down this window, we will save you and your family. And, and she, she had to adjust her life because she was a harlot. That's a prostitute. She had to leave the life she had in the past because God was going to save her and her family. And when she came into Israel, do you understand? understand she's in the, the messianic line because she adjusted her life to God and God comes to us and he says, I know you're used to doing things this way, but I need you to stop. I need you to throw the nets out. I need you to, to transform. Why not take a step of faith? Because we love to be in control. Are our lives really under our control? Look at 2 Corinthians 4, 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Jars of clay, what's that all about? That's pottery. 
our lives are like pottery. Uh, again, we're, we're not great people with, the, with the, anything green. People will give us plants from time to time. We, we appreciate the plants. Thank you so much. If you expect to see them planted in our yard, thank you so much for expecting that. It's probably not going to happen, but we try. And, and in the past, we've, we've been given some plants. One day uh, in, in Holtville, I walked over to a woman's house, and she made me lunch at the house. It was an older woman in, in the church, and she said, if you'll just stop by, and I expected her to have a nice little package, and she gave me a pot with hot soup in it. I was walking. She didn't realize it. And then on the other hand, she gave me a potted plant. And she said, you can plant this in your home. So I had a clay pot in this hand and a hot pot of soup in the other hand. Did I tell you it was about 115 that day when I was walking back from this woman's house at lunch? And I was walking along, and a bee landed on my nose. Now, I wasn't going to drop the soup because, look at me, do, you, do I look like I would drop the soup? And I tried to set the plant down carefully, but I didn't, and, and I broke the pot, just trying to set it down to slap the bee away because I was afraid it was going to stink. I mean, it's big enough. I didn't need a stung nose on top of it. We're like jars of clay. We're like pottery that gets set down and gets cracked before it even gets home. We're not in control of our life, folks. Unless we come to the, to, to the crisis of belief that we talked about last week, we won't adjust our circumstances, our job, our home, our finances, our relationships, those family and friends that we need to, to adjust, thinking uh, the, the way we think, our methods, our, our prejudices, uh, and our commitments. Uh, what are your commitments to the family, to the church, to the Christ? What are your actions, how you pray, how you give, how you, how you serve, your beliefs, those core beliefs, how life works, what is grace? What are you willing to adjust? You need to adjust everything in your life to the Lord when he directs it number two I need to adjust how I view God Peter's politely dismissive he says you don't know much about fishing is that what we think do you believe that God is who he says he is and that he will do what he says he will do in your life most of us are like Peter when the Lord says listen I want you to do this I want you to read through the Bible in a year and you say Lord you don't understand how I read it may take me two years it may take me three years Lord you just don't understand and if the Lord lays on your heart to do something like that guess what he can help you read faster and with more comprehension and if he lays on your heart like he did some on some of the ladies who come every Monday and pray at nine o'clock on Monday morning if he lays it on your heart and you say Lord I'm not I don't pray in public do you know what you're missing because it really says more about what you think about God than what you think about yourself and the Lord says do you get it you, you say Lord you don't know my circumstances my family what I'm going through God knows Mark Buchanan, in a book called Your God is Too Safe, says we often treat God as the Lord of the predicament. He's there to bail us out, to whisk us away, to rescue us. He is the God of our binds and squeezes, but rarely the God of our everyday lives. Until a crisis hits, we really do not want God crowding in on us. We want to keep him at a safe, cool distance, hovering in the shadows until summoned, usually to assist us in being true to what we think we are. We view God maybe as an ogre. He's someone there. He's just looking for us to mess up. And the first time you mess up, man, he's waiting there to swatch you. That's not God. Isaiah 41.10, I love this. It says, so do not fear. This is the Lord speaking. For I am with you. 
Don't be dismayed. I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That was a sign of strength. That was a sign of stability. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Here's a question. How do you view God? Or let's state it a different way. In your heart, are you willing to do whatever he asks you to do? How do you view God? Are you willing in your heart, in the deepest part of you, are you willing to do whatever God asks you to do, to go wherever he asks you to go? What does the Lord expect me to adjust? How I live and how I view him. Here's the the second part of this. What is the extent of this adjustment? Look at Luke chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. What's the extent? How much? When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish. Wait, wait, wait a second. What what happened here? Go back to verse 5. Peter's talking, Simon. Master, we worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I'll let down the nets. I can just see that net hitting the water. It's not that they worked for four or five hours. I think that net hit the water, and all of a sudden, it went whoop. I mean, it's not like any fishing trip I've ever taken. When I throw that lure out there and I throw that line out there, I don't expect anything to take it immediately and run with it. I'm thinking this is a long-term process, and I think it hit the water. Because look at what, when they had done so, the Greek says that that's immediate action. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, now don't miss this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, or to Peter, Don't be afraid, from now on you will catch men. And look at this verse. It's the only one of the Gospels that includes this. But look at what it says, verse 11. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. What's the extent? Number one, live absolutely surrendered to Christ. Peter's glimpse of who Jesus really was also gave him a glimpse of who he really was. When he realized that this man who told him to go drop the nets was the Son of God, the one who created the fish, the one who directed that great fish to swallow Jonah, the one who could, could handle anything that was going on in the sea. When Peter realized that he was speaking to someone that was far more than just a prophet or a good teacher or a good man, all of a sudden he realized he was speaking to someone who could, who could have miraculous things happen just on the, the, the very first syllable of the word. It happened so fast, he didn't even know what to do with it. And Peter just falls on and sneezes and says, whoa, get away from me. I'm a sinful man. Or martia is the Greek word for sin, and it's used a lot of different ways. But in this particular case, it actually takes a personification, uh, armatolos, and it's one isolated from society because of open sin, unacceptable behavior or lifestyle. It's one who is a sinner. Peter just didn't say, hey, hey Lord, I, I've got this one little problem in my life. He says, listen, Lord, I am just infested with sin. In my heart, I just saw a glimpse of who I am, and I'm selfish, and I'm controlling, and I want to do my thing at my time. I, I, I'm not surrendered to you, Lord. Get away from me. I'm not a humble man. Surrender comes when we realize we have nowhere else to turn. 
Our kids, uh, w- when they gr- got a little older, they, they loved to play games, and we would play board games, and we made the mistake of introducing them to Monopoly. Anybody here ever play Monopoly? You know Monopoly? And you sell all the properties, and you get the little houses and the hotels and stuff. And, and Chris, especially our oldest son, he loved to play this, and the, the kids didn't like playing with him because we allowed them to get multiple hotels on property, so you could double or triple the rent. And all of a sudden, you could hear in the other room when they were playing Monopoly, oh, oh, no, I landed on Boardwalk. I owe so much. To, I'm, I'm bankrupt. I'm out of here. And Chris would always say, do you surrender your properties? It was chilling. I grabbed my wallet when he would say that. Mark Buchanan, in an Ethics of a Dangerous Faith, an article that he wrote, says this. The Pharisee's question was not how, I, how can I glorify God, it was how can I avoid bringing disgrace to God. This degenerated into a concern not with God but with self, with image, with reputation, with, proceed, with procedure. They didn't ask, how can I make others clean? They asked, how can I keep myself from getting dirty? They did not seek to rescue sinners. They only sought to avoid sinning. Is that us? Is this about bringing glory and honor to the Lord? Is this about making sure that nobody looks at us and thinks badly of us? And that's the way Peter was and that's the way we are. Jesus, in sharp contrast, got involved. He sought always and in all ways to heal, to help, to save, to restore. Rather than f- running from evil, he ran toward the good. And evil, in fear, fled this one. Look at the story of Legion, the man under assault by a demon mob. Everyone else fears this one that was named Legion. And they tried to banish him to the tombs. But when Jesus shows up, it's Legion who is afraid, begging Jesus not to torture him. Jesus came to seek and to save that which is lost, not to destroy. He heals Legion, restores him to community. Jesus is not in the least afraid of Legion's evil. Rather, the evil in Legion fears the holy power in Jesus and is subdued by it. Darkness always flees light. Now get this, mark it well. Evil isn't safe in the presence of the God who is not safe. Nor, and this is the point, is evil safe in the presence of those who forsake the God who is too safe and follow the Christ? He concludes, The tragedy is that we've often preferred the ethic of the Pharisee to the ethic of Christ. We've become self-obsessed in our doctrine of sin as though sin were merely a personal flaw like acne, planter's warts, or crooked teeth, or baldness. He didn't say that. But I love Mark Buchanan because he is bald and he's a Baptist. I think that's a great combination. Like acne, planter's warts, or crooked teeth. As though sin is merely about personal victory or defeat. We seldom see sin as a brokenness that's bone deep and creation wide. Sin ruptures our relationships with God, with one another, with the creation. It ruptures our own deepest self. So sin needs more than a private remedy, a personal therapy. Overcoming sin requires more than avoidance. The ethic of avoidance proves altogether too frail an ambition. God desires restoration. God desires reconciliation of relationships, of creation, of our own true selves to him. That's the wider and deeper meaning of the cross. As Paul declares in his letter to the Ephesians, you who were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. Brought near to what? to God, to each other, to the person God originally intended us to be. What is he saying? 
We need to live completely, absolutely surrendered. It's not about looking good in front of other people. It's recognizing that sin that's in us. The result of this realization was that Peter and James and John left everything. Henry Blackaby says, until I'm ready to make until I'm ready to make any change necessary to follow and obey God, I'm of little use to God. Did you get that? Unless I'm willing and ready to make any change necessary to follow and obey God, I'm of little use to God. What is the verse that we live by? Galatians 2.20? I love this verse. It's been put to song. I'm crucified with Christ. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We've been put to death. Colossians 3 says, mortify, put to death those things in your body that you're living for. Live absolutely surrendered. Let me ask you a question. Does surrender mean mercy, uh, misery? Does surrender mean misery? If you surrender to the Lord, are you going to be miserable? When uh, we were living in Holtville, how many of you have ever been to Imperial Valley? Anybody here? A few of you have. I'm so sorry. A a few of you went by and saw where we were in Holtville. I know that Herb and Linda did. And Herb said, wow, that was a terrible place to live. And he was right. When our granddaughter, Ashley, came and stayed with us a couple weeks, we were coming back from San Diego, and you would come down off the mountain, and there would be this haze and, this, and all of the, the smells of the different chemicals they were using on the plants, and it was hot and nasty and, and horrible. And we came down one night, and she said, Papa, you live in a miserable place. And I tried to explain to her that when you're where the Lord wants you, it's never miserable. It may not be the most beautiful the most wonderful place, but you're never miserable. God changes our desires. Philippians 2.13 says God works in us to will and to do those purposes. Psalm 37.4 says delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. We are to live absolutely surrendered to Christ. And here's the last one, live totally reliant on Christ. The largest catch that Peter ever experienced was this catch, I am convinced. There's no other time that it tells us that, that both of the boats began to sink. Uh, the other time they, caught, they counted the fish, this time they didn't even stop and do that. I guess what I think is why not sell the fish and live on the, the money? I mean, he left everything. He left all those wonderful fish. Surely somebody came along and, and, and made a fortune off of that catch that day. Why didn't Peter just, I mean, I, I want to be spiritual here. Why didn't he do it and give an offering to the church and just say, okay, Okay, Lord, you know, we caught 2,376 fish and we got so much per pound. So here it is, not just a tithe, here's the whole thing. Why didn't he do that? Because I believe Jesus wanted them to live totally reliant, totally dependent on him. There's a story in the Old Testament, I love it, 1 Kings chapter 19. Elijah comes and, and Elijah, you know, he's been, very, uh, he, he's been very strong. He's up on the mountain and he prays and fire falls. And then uh, Ahab and Jezebel, especially Jezebel, says, I'm going to kill you within 24 hours. He runs from the presence and the Lord comes and meets with him and, and reveals himself and he experiences God. And Elijah says, I'm the only one left. Just kill me, God. I'm the only one left. I love the drama. Just kill me, Lord. I'm the only faithful one you got left. And the Lord says, oh, hush. I got 7,000 who haven't bowed, bowed their knee. You're just one of many I'm using, Elijah. 
And by the way, Elijah, I'm going to give you an assistant. His name's Elisha. You, you, I'm going to show you who he is. And there's going to be a king, and he's going to rise, and this is going to happen. He gives him all this encouragement. I think he kicks him out the door and says, come on, Elijah. And so Elijah shows up to Elisha, 1 Kings 19, 21. And, it says, so, and he says, hey, Elisha, come with me. And he says, let me go back and talk to my parents. He says, whatever. That's the first time I think in all of history that, that somebody says, Whatever. And he turns to go, and then it says, so Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen. Earlier it tells us that he actually was on the 12th yoke. That's 24 oxen. Now, we don't know if he did this for all 24 or just the two he was working with, but look what happened. He had a barbecue. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah and became his attendant. You're talking about burning your bridges. This guy's a farmer. He needed the oxen to plow. And he knew that as long as those oxen were alive, if something happened with Elijah and it didn't work out, he could always go back and he could plow some more fields. But you can't, when you kill the oxen and you feed the family or the, the, the crowd that's there, and you burn the equipment, you've burned your bridges. You can't go back. At one point, Jesus says to the disciples, Are you going to leave too? So many of the disciples, so many of those who said they were disciples, they came for the feeding of the 5,000, they came for the feeding of, of the 4,000 later, they came for all the miracles, and they began to dwindle away when Jesus started talking about that he was going to die, he was going to be buried, and he was going to be resurrected. They didn't want to have anything to do with the, the prophet that was going to die. They wanted the prophet who was the, to be the king. And he says to them, are you going to leave too? And Peter says, where else could we go? Who else has the words of eternal life? When we come to the point where we're totally and completely dependent on him and we live just as reliant as Peter and James and John did, it changes us. In verse 11, from now on, it, it, he says, so they pulled their boats on shore, left everything and followed him. Um, or, or actually, in verse 10, don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. From now on, in the Greek, literally is a phrase, you're, you're, you've made a turn. You're changing. Fundamentally, this will be different from now on. From now on, you won't ever look back. He says to Peter, listen, you understand, you, you're going to fail. There's going to be plenty of times that you're going to think you can look back. But from now on, and that's what he calls us to. Have you ever been de de completely reliant completely dependent on someone, something else. My father uh, was a diabetic. He, he came about his diabetes about the, about the same age I am right now. My cousin is a diabetic. My nephew is a diabetic. So we've had a lot of diabetes in our family. And one time I went to see my dad uh, after he had diabetes and we had come to see him and, and the rest of the family was doing something and my mom was in there and she said, I'm going to give him his shot. And I said to dad, how do you feel about this? He said, how do you think I feel about this? I'm 50-something years old, and I have to have someone. He said, I gave myself shots for a while, but he said, my legs got so, so uh, knotted up with all of the places where I gave shots that we're starting to give the shots in the stomach. And he said, it's, it's too painful on the arms, and so I'm getting shots in the stomach and in the, in the hips. And he said, it's, it's embarrassing. He said, I'm a pastor. I'm this man of this age, and, and I have to depend on somebody else to poke me every day. He took his blood, he became a brittle diabetic. Toward the end, he couldn't regulate his sugar, and he was all over the map. And when my dad would leave for any time, he, he 
wrecked two cars, one of them way outside of Kansas City where he was driving because he was in a diabetic coma. By the time they got to him, his blood sugar was just completely off the chart. And he was completely dependent on that. And it got so that every time he left, my mom would say, do you have the bracelet that identifies that you're a diabetic? Because when they saw him the first time, they thought he was drunk because there were a lot of the same similarities in the way you act. Do you have your bracelet that says you're a diabetic? Do you have your candy in your pocket? Do you have the extra insulin? Do you have this? Do you have all these things? Are you ready to go out? To be totally dependent. You know, I had a, a closing illustration, but I'm going to close with this. This morning in Sunday school, we were talking about Zechariah, and Joel was teaching. And he was asking us, when was a time that we were humbled, and when did we depend completely on the Lord? And when did God provide in a way that we didn't think he was going to provide? And my response to Joel was when we had you come on board as, uh, on our staff. We were praying that God would bring the right person at the right time. We didn't know how we could afford somebody else on staff. We didn't know how any of this was going to work out. But we just knew that the Lord wanted us to have, to, to have something else that wasn't quite there in the mix yet. And we prayed and we asked the Lord about it. And, and it seemed to be he was revealing that. But we didn't know what was happening. And one Sunday morning, Joel and Leslie showed up. They came to listen to, to Kevin play the bass. This is Leslie's dad, okay? Kevin is, is Leslie's dad. And so Kevin was playing. They came to listen to Kevin play the bass. And Joel revealed today that they were up till 1 o'clock the night before talking about the future of ministry and what they were supposed to do and where they were supposed to go. And they were talking about all these things. And then he had to go to work at 5 o'clock in the morning, and he, was, he had a second job. And after that, he said, you know, we were so tired. It was easy. We, we could just skip church. And he says, no, let's go listen to your dad play the bass. What he didn't know is that that morning, Gary was standing here on the platform, and we were talking about if the Lord would allow somebody to come on staff. And Gary prayed that morning as he was praying with the choir. He said, Lord, I believe that that person might even be in the auditorium today that you're going to add to the staff. And when we're totally dependent on Jesus Christ, God works all of those things together. And when Joel came, one of the first things that when I met him, I, and I didn't, I, it wasn't in my head, it wasn't something I'd planned, it wasn't something in my heart, but out of my mouth came these words. We need to talk about where you're going to go with the ministry and, and to see what God might want to do with you even here. And that came out of my mouth, and I think Joel was shocked, and I'm thinking, whoo, that was exciting. Where did that come from? It came from him. When you walk every day, totally, completely surrendered, every day dependent on him. Watch how he works out all the details. Let's pray. What an amazing God you are, Father. You can do that in so many ways. You can transform us, Father, into the people that you want us to be. But there's so many times that we're so busy with our own agenda, with our own scheme, our own plan that we miss it. And Father, you're not some ogre that's trying to force us into a mold that we don't fit. You're trying to, to shave off those things that have never fit into your plan. And your ways are higher than our ways and your, your knowledge is far beyond what we know. And you will change us so that this will be the desire of our heart to be fulfilled in your presence. So we ask you today, Father, we know that you saved us by grace. We ask, uh, ask you, Father, to, to hone us, to, to cut away those things 
that are less than what you want us to be, to make us your disciples, to live for you, to grow in you, to experience you in an amazing way as we follow what you've led us to do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.